You're listening to Crossroads International Church Podcast. Welcome. We hope this podcast will bless you from wherever you're listening to it. For more information, go to our website at xrgs.nl. Now, let's get into the podcast. Good morning, Crossroads. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah, there we go. It's really good to be here again. My name is Alan. I am one of the family ministry leaders here at Crossroads, and it is my absolute privilege to, to take us through the summer series on world religions. But before I get into any of that, I just want to reiterate Alpha again. And it is Missions Month, and at Missions Month, we ask that question as a church, how do we engage the world around us? And Alpha is a really great place to do that, to really just take a moment this month to pray about your colleagues, your family, your friends, and say, hey, is there somebody that I know who might be curious and might be interested in the Christian faith? And then sign up for all for yourself and then just approach them and say, hey, I'm going to this really great thing. Why don't you join me? It's just a simple invitation. and It's a big step of faith, and I can promise you you'll be encouraged by doing that. Right? And your own faith will be nurtured, nurtured and emboldened by that. Now, we're talking about world religions. And you might be sitting here wondering, why on earth would we talk about other faiths within the Christian church? And, and it's a good question. It's a fair question. And we're doing that simply because Jesus asked us or told us, instructed us to go out and love our neighbors. And last week we spoke about this, that the world has changed so much that there's almost a 30% chance that your neighbor is a Muslim. There's a, almost a 20% chance that your neighbor is a Hindu or a Buddhist. These are realities of the society we live in. We also realize here in the Netherlands specifically, those stats look obviously a lot, lot different, but in the Netherlands, your neighbor is most likely, there's a 50% chance that is non-religious and non-affiliated. Right? And that's why in the last Sunday, we will look at that and try and understand where our neighbors come from, how do they understand the world, and how do they, how do they look at it? Right? So that we have opportunities to talk with them and find connect points to build relationships but then also be very clear in our understanding of where do we defer from one another? So that when we have these conversations, we can actually lead them to our understanding of who Jesus is and why do we have the faith that we have. Now, just one quick disclaimer. I'm a Christian theologian. My speciality is Christianity. Um, I love studying other religions. I, I took a whole course with, over two years on studying other religions and the interaction of Christianity and other religions. It's something I'm really passionate about, but I'm in no sense an expert on any of these religious traditions. All right? So that's just very important for me to state. Then, obviously, in a sermon, I just don't have time to answer all of the questions that there are about these religious traditions and our interaction and our connection points with them. So that's why on August 24th, we are hosting a deeper night to answer some of the more difficult questions that this series might raise. Questions about, does Christianity have the sole ownership of truth? Or is there perhaps some other value or truth to other religious traditions? That is a question that we need to ask. What do we do with statements within Christianity where we say Jesus is the only way? The way, the truth, and, all, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. Right? Which is kind of an exclusivist statement. Right? But what does it mean for our relationship with people of another faith? What does it mean for our understanding of whether these people will be able to attain salvation or not? And more importantly, if you look at this historically, what does it mean for us if we view somebody else 
of another faith if they are. So in a sense, we kind of can claim, hey, we have Jesus, right? And it can kind of become a sense of, hey, I have something that this person not ha- does not have. And I can almost take it as something, I have something more, something better, and I can lord it over somebody else. And historically, the church has done this. And it has led to really, really bad things in the history of the church. So it's, the way we answer these questions is extremely important. So that's on August 24th. I want to thank you also for some of the questions. That I got quite a few emails and some good conversations after the service last week. Um, I will try and answer some of these throughout the next few sermons. One of those relates to religious violence. I will take that on next week. And I really appreciate that. And it's good for us to have these conversations. Um, just to give the sermon some structure, I'm going to start with reading a scripture. Right? And I want you to really listen to the words in the verses that I'm reading today. And use them to reflect on how I describe this other religion today, Buddhism. Right? How do these religions, how does our scripture text highlight differences in our understanding of what Buddhism is? What sets Christianity apart? Right, so I'll do that. I'm going to pray for us. And then what we'll do is I'll give a brief overview of, of Buddhism. Now, I need to clarify this as well. This is a high view of Buddhism. Right? As with any religion, there are many different thoughts and flows within each religion. And I cannot cover all of it here. It's just not possible. Right? So it's going to be a high view, just oversight, which most Buddhists would kind of agree with. Right? That's very important. Then we'll look at some points of agreement. What are some things that we and, we and our Buddhist brothers hold in common? Where can we connect with one another? And where can we learn from one another? But then also very importantly, where do we disagree with one another? It's a very important thing. So, let me get started. If you have your text with you, I'll be reading from Romans 8 and Philippians 4. It goes as follows. This is Paul writing. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory of that will be revealed in us. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. And in Philippians 4, one I hope most of you have committed to memory. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we we come before you this morning and and look at the faith of of another people, of other people, and as they pursue truth and meaning. Lord, I pray that you would walk this road with us. Lord, may we learn to love and respect their, their worldview and where they come from. But may we also learn by looking at the differences, what sets Christianity so apart and what makes it so unique and so beautiful to follow you. And Lord, may this reflection help us love you the more and follow you so much better. Be with us now, I pray. Amen. All right. So I'm going to be talking about Buddhism this morning. Last week we covered Hinduism. And I, if you were here last week, you'll notice that there's quite a lot of overlap. 
And I'll be covering some of those overlaps just for the sake of clarity and continuity. And, and the reason for that is Buddhism was born kind of at, against the, the backdrop of Hinduism in the northern parts of India. Now, before I go into a bit of the historical development, there is a bit of a conversation we need to have about whether Buddhism is actually a religion. And some of you might know that there is, within Buddhism there is no defined deity or god that they worship. So a lot of people argue that it is just a philosophy, and as a Christian I can follow it, and as a, as a Muslim I can follow it, and as a Jew I can follow Buddhism, and it's all right. And it's a phenomenon, in, in, in the academic sense, we call it dual belonging, people who claim to be Buddhist and Christian. And it presents a very unique challenge to us as a church. What do we do with that? And I hope today as we dig into it, you'll, you'll come to see that Buddhism actually answers very specific religious, religious questions about the nature of humanity, the nature of life, and has a very clear idea of where it's all going. And in that sense, it is a religion as well. And these two come together in a very strong way. All right, so can I get the biblical timeline for a second? So I'll do this every week. I'm going to throw up a biblical timeline just for our reference to give you something to hold on to, to compare this religion to our Christian development. So again, some of the Hindu stuff are on here as well. So during the time of Abraham, more or less these dates are just estimates. There's a lot of debate around dating things. Um, you'll see that the oral, oral tradition of the Vedas started. That's the religious text of the Hindus. And then around about the time of King David and the writing of the Psalms, the Vedas were written were committed to writing. Then Siddhartha Gautama was born more or less in the time of the Babylonian exile. And this is quite important for us because it kind of gives you the idea that, hey, Hinduism was a very well-developed religion by the time of Siddhartha Gautama. And he's kind of the central figure who we, all make, who we today know as the Buddha and we'll look at quite a lot. Um, after his life, most of his teachings were committed to writing only by the time of Jesus. Um, and it's what is known as the Pali Canon. All right. Thank you. You can take that down. So, Buddhism centers around this figure, Siddhartha Gautama. And how his life unfolded, there's a lot of different ideas and thoughts about it. And for Buddhists, it's not really important the facts about his life. What is important is actually the teachings of the Buddha and not the actual events. There's different thoughts about whether these, the things I will share with you now are actual mythological events, whether it was a god who revealed these things to them or whether they were a historical occurrence. I'm going to tell them as a story just for the sake of clarity and that will give us just a bit of a framework and a hold to what Buddhism actually entails and what the important elements of Buddhism is. So Siddhartha Gautama was, was born as a prince. His father was a tribal chief in the northern part of India, kind of on the border of the Himalayas. Um, kind of more or less where today's modern-day Nepal is situated. Right? So this is where he was raised in a, um, in a palace. And what happened was his, at, the, at his birth, his mother passed away. And one of the stories goes that to protect his son from suffering and sorrow, his father raised him in this very, very protected environment. And he's, literally, he stayed in this palace for 30 years. Right, where his family, where his father protected him from any of the onslaughts from the outside world. He never had existential experiences about what happens in life. And he always just had enough. He was surrounded by beautiful things and beautiful people. And there was nothing 
but there was no lack in his life. Just before his 20s, he got married. He had a son as well. And they stayed in the temple for, I mean, in the palace for another, about another 10 years. And at, at the age of 29, Siddhartha kind of got discontent. We started asking questions. I wanted to experience the outside world. So he's asking his dad, can I go and see the city? Can I go and see the town? And what happens is his father kind of sets the scene, sets up a, a kind of a, a parade for him that he doesn't really see the bad things. Of, of life. But that's not what happens. As you can imagine, Siddhartha sets out on his chariot and he's got a charioteer with him. And they're not far from the palace and the first thing Siddhartha encounters is a sick old man at the point of death. Oh, not at the point of death, but a, uh, an old man, sorry, just an old man. And Siddhartha turns to his charioteer, is this the fate of all of us? Will we all go old? And the church says, yes, that is the fate of all of us. We will all go old. And it's kind of a strange idea that he's not seen an old person all his life. And Siddhartha is distraught by this event. He goes back home and he's wrestling with us. A few days later, he heads out again with his chariot. And his dad kind of organizes that there's no old people on the road, clears them all out. And as they travel, Siddhartha encounters a sick person who's at the point of death. And, and Siddhartha, again, distraught by this experience, asks his charioteer, is this the reality of life? Do all people experience sickness and illness? And his charioteer, yes, this, 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 is, this is life. This is the reality. And Siddhartha is overcome by this, and he heads back home distraught. And again, he sets out a few days later with his charioteer, and his dad kind of clears it even more. There's no old people. There's no sick people. It is a sanitized experience. And again, Siddhartha encounters a funeral parade carrying a litter of a death, dead person. And Siddhartha is overcome by this experience. Death for the first time. And he's so overcome by this that he does not know how to handle this. So he goes back to his palace and his dad tries to comfort him and throws these big festivals and all material things that he can possibly throw at him to just kind of, you know, cheer him up. But Siddhartha has this existential crisis. And he, in these writings, they refer to it as dukkha. And, and what it means, most translations kind of use the idea of suffering, an experience of suffering. But it's probably better translated as a kind of anxiety, not to, not to be able to breathe. Uh, one, one, one of the Buddhist leaders I, I kind of just read up on this last week kind of explains it as a, a not quite rightness with life. And he's so distraught by this. And whilst he was out, he also encountered monks, Hindu monks, who, who kind of gave up all things and, and practiced extreme poverty and alms in society. And he thought, well, if, if all this wealth and goodness is not giving me an answer to this, this dukkha, this anxiety that I'm experiencing... Perhaps these, these Hindus, these, these um, oh, monks, thank you. It's amazing how just disappears. Anyway, how these monks, maybe they have the answer to this anxiety, to this dukkha that I'm experiencing. So he goes out and he follows them for six years. He practices this extreme form of asceticism. It's kind of said that he, lived on, he tried to live certain days on just one grain of rice. 
There's some of the texts even argue, say, make the statement that he, he slept with decaying bodies. Extreme, extreme form of asceticism, trying to get as far as way, or as deep into poverty and those things and serving other people. And after six years, he realizes, well, wealth didn't do it. This ascetic life of a, of a monk is not getting me there. I still am still sitting with this anxiousness, this dukkha. And so Siddhartha gives that up as well, and he goes and sits under a fig tree. And he's determined not to leave this fig tree until he has found the answer to life's stresses, anxieties. And he sits under this tree for about 50 days. I think 49 to be exact, depending on the source you read. And then suddenly he has this, this moment of enlightenment, a wisdom, a revelation comes to him. And he stands up and he solved it, right? And that tree gets known as, the, as a Bodhi tree, the tree of wisdom or of enlightenment. And so Siddhartha sets out to go and teach for the next 45 years of his life, goes out around and teaching what is it that he has learned under this Bodhi tree to escape the stresses and anxieties of life. Now, we already touched this. He, when he, sorry, I just want to get to my exact place in my notes. After his death, he was poisoned. Um, there's, doesn't seem that there's any foul play around that, but he was poisoned. And when he died, his teachings was committed orally. And as we said earlier, it was committed to writing only by the time of Jesus in the Palikanon. And one of the texts in there is the Dhammapada. And I want to just read a verse from that just to give you an idea of the sense of the kind of writings. Dhammapada 1 verse 5 says, Hatred is never appeased by hatred in this world. By non-hatred alone is hatred appeased. And so it's kind of like wisdom sayings, right? It's very similar to what we would read in the book of Proverbs, right? And a lot of this, and when Christians read this, you would actually find that I can actually agree with most of these things because it's just this or that kind of statement. It's not statements about faith or belief or anything like that. It is wisdom literature. Obviously, there are a lot that we would not agree with. And I want to get to what is the summary of his teaching, right? And in Buddhism, this is called the Four Noble Truths. Now, the Four Noble Truths goes as follows. That life has inherent suffering, inherent dukkha. The stress or angst is inherently part of life. We all experience it. And it's something, and that is kind of at the heart of Buddhism. How do I avoid the stress or this angst that I experience? The second Noble Truth is this angst or anxiety comes from a place of attachment. Because I'm attached to things, when something happens to it, I experience angst. So whether it's material things or other persons. So that is the second noble truth. Right? Angst or anxiety comes from being attached to things. The third noble truth says, I can overcome this angst if I can overcome my attachments. Right? So I need to be detached from things and people in order to overcome my angst or my anxiety. And then the fourth um, noble truth is called the Eightfold Path. And basically what it says that the, the way to detachment, to actually experience this moment of, of enlightenment like the Buddha, you have to follow a certain path. Right? And the, I'm just going to read it to you. 
There's eight steps in it. The first one is the right view. That is a good understanding of the Buddhist teaching. Right purpose. That is to become free of my attachments or my cravings. Right speech. Right action. Right livelihood. Right effort. Right mindfulness or awareness. I'm going to get back to that one in a sec. And then right concentration. Right? Eight things. And I think... As Christians, when we hear this, I, I can kind of agree to, with some of these things. Suffering is something you and I all experience. It's something we all are ever a keen awareness of. And yes, I can see that attachment to things makes suffering worse. Although as Christians, we have a different understanding of where suffering comes from. And if I look at these eightfold path, things like right speech and right action, is stuff that I think most of us would agree on. To not do evil, but to do good. Right? Simple. But underlying this f- four noble truths, there's a, there's a philosophy which I think is important to just mention. It's not discussed quite often when people discuss Buddhism, but it, it relates to the Buddhist worldview. And there's two really important concepts there. It's Anicca and Anatta. Now, Anicca is kind of the idea that Every th- the, the idea of non-permanence. Everything changes. Right? And that, uh, they apply it to all of reality. Nothing is permanent. And then anatta goes with that, that there is no substance to nothing. And those two combined kind of give you the idea that reality is illusionary, transient, and just passing. And then the third philosophical thing that ties in with that, I know this is a bit, bit tough perhaps to conceptualize, but the third one with dukkha is that stressful stuff is kind of like the belief that I experience dukkha because I hold that some things are real, that some things have substance, that some things don't change. So for instance, I have a family member. He's real, but that person is going to die. There's an impermanence to that. And because I'm attached to him, and holding on to him or her, I experience suffering. So the idea is to be detached. That it, Yes, suffering happens as an inevitable part, but I don't have attachment, so when that happens, I don't experience suffering. Does that, does that make sense in some way? I hope so. I hope so. So what I quickly want to do is just look at Hinduism and Buddhism before I look at our connect points with, these, uh, with Buddhism specifically, just because it has this very strong foundation of Hinduism. Now, last week we, we spoke about Hinduism, that Hinduism has this idea of an ultimate reality or a God that stands over and above all things, but is also part of all things, Brahman. Now, in Buddhism, there is no defined deity. Right? And this is quite an important thing. It's not that they're atheistic. Some branches of Buddhism is atheistic, but it's more a thing of being agnostic about it. One, we cannot really know. And also in Buddhism, it doesn't really matter. Because going back to that philosophical, philosophical idea, even the gods themselves are transient and non-permanent. So they will fade away as well. Right? So if you can follow that. Right? Oh, my screen just went white. Uh, there we go. The second one relates to the... Ooh. We, the, the nature of the soul. So we spoke about last week about the Atman in Hinduism. That each person or every living thing has an Atman, a soul, that seeks to, be, to rejoin Brahman, become part of the whole again, the one true thing, right? 
In Buddhism, they don't have the one true thing, and they also don't have the concept of, concept of soul. It's called the anatman, no soul, literally, no soul. So a person does not have a soul. But this is a bit confusing, especially if you look at things like samsara. We spoke about this last week, samsara being the cycle of reincarnation. Right? Buddhism also agrees with the idea of samsara, the cycle of reincarnation, and also karma, that the way you do good things, pursue your duty of learning the spiritual truth of disentanglement or disattachment will determine what your next life will look like. So they agree with this. But what is then transferred when you die if you have no soul? If there's nothing that is really you, it becomes a bit of a something that I, in my study of, of Buddhism, I don't fully understand. So somebody can maybe help me out with that after the service. But it becomes interesting because if you read the Buddha himself, he has recollection of his own life, almost over 500 times as as humans and um, animals. Right. So the Buddha, there is still something that is transferred, and this is most often explained as some kind of energy, right? That you are. And this becomes important for when we discuss what happens when you actually now experience this moment of enlightenment and you die, where do you go? And in Buddhism, so once you've lived your 500 lives and kind of reached this moment of enlightenment, of wisdom, where I can fully detach myself, let go of this life and all things, you experience what Buddhists would call nirvana. Now, nirvana literally means to extinguish. And the image a lot of places use is the, the idea of a candle being blown out. Right? Some would say, yeah, that's not really what we understand with nirvana. It's more of a thing of our energy be being taken up into the whole of energy. It's a bit unclear. All right? But it goes, there's no more stresses, no more suffering, no more anxiousness. But there's also no you. All right? Very important. So, Points of agreement for us as Christians. I think one of the easiest places is just this whole idea of suffering. Right? It is something that is extremely central to Buddhism. Right? Stresses the not rightness of life. That's something we can talk about and agree on. We've all experienced it. We've all experienced the loss of a loved one, seen a parent grow old, experienced aging ourselves. It is something that is part of reality. I think COVID was probably a good lesson for all of us in the not right, not quite rightness of life, if I can say it like that. And as Christians, we do not deny the reality of suffering. Right? But the way we understand suffering is very, very different. For Buddhists, suffering really comes from this idea of attachment. And in Christianity, you actually find a very similar idea. This is the second thing that we actually hold close to with one another is this idea of detachment, of not clinging to things, of holding life loosely. Jesus said over, or not over, he instructed his disciples, do not store up treasures on earth, but in heaven. He told his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, do not worry about what you will eat, or what you will drink, or what you will wear, but seek my kingdom. And these things will be added to you. Holding things loosely is perhaps something we can share with our Buddhist neighbors. Some of you, depending on where you tradition you come from, might be familiar with the seven deadly sins. It is a bit something we don't use a lot in church anymore. But I'm just going to go through them. 
the seven deadly sins are lust, gluttony, greed, indifference, anger, envy, pride. And in a sense, almost all of those carry with it an underlying sense of attachment. And I would rather say, not necessarily attachment, but a wrong kind of attachment. A, I wrote it down here, a, um, an inappropriate desire of holding on to something too tightly, where it becomes an idol. And that's something we have spoken a lot about. So we kind of share this idea of, hey, I need to be live, living loosely with the things that are around me. But there are some important differences which we'll get to in a second. And the third thing we share is kind of this idea of meditation and mindfulness. Now, I need to be careful here because there might be some strong opinions about this. And this is something which has very much infiltrated our Western culture. I love going to the, the Intratain and seeing little Buddhas everywhere. Not, not that I love seeing the Buddhas everywhere, but I love the Intratain. Sorry. And uh, <laughs> that's a weird thing to say. Anyway, but you see the Buddha everywhere, and he's kind of become this kind of this symbol of calm and Zen and, you know, calm. And in your workplaces, a lot of you actually would have mindfulness training taking place to look after your mental health. And it is actually, what I find interesting about this is historically, the Western church especially has kind of forgotten our spiritual roots of meditation and digging into scripture, of prayer, of taking a silent retreat. And it's something that, because of our interaction with, with the East, that's kind of said, hey, what, what does our spirituality actually look like? And Christianity has a very, very deep richness of meditation. And it's worth looking into. I don't have time to go into that. But there is a very richness. It's very different than Buddhist meditation. Buddhist meditation is really has to do with awareness of, and being present. But Christian meditation says, yes, I want to be present and aware of what's happening around. That's part of my reflection but it is much more about digging into God's word, putting on the mind of Christ. So it's a very clear purpose of my meditation. So points of divergence. I see I'm running out of time, so I'll go through this quite fast. For Christians, the origin, so for Buddhism, we've spoken about this already. Suffering comes 